0: Good afternoon to those of you on the east coast of Australia. Uh, Good morning, late morning if you're in Western Australia and of course if you're in Washington like our guest, um, it's very late in the evening. Um, I'm I'm Simon Jackman, Professor of Political Science and the CEO of the United States Study Centre at the University of Sydney and uh, welcome to this month's US Politics and Policy Update which I co-host or alternately host um, with Gordon Flake, who I'll introduce in a moment. But first, let me acknowledge that the United States Studies Center here at the University of Sydney uh, stands on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people, part of the Aura Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Um, Today, Gordon and I uh, are joined by Annalise Nielsen, um, who is Sky's Washington DC political reporter and indeed, Sky News' is, uh, first Washington correspondent, capital W, capital C. Uh, Annalise um, went over, I believe, for the campaign. We'll get to that in a moment with Annalise. Uh, and, and stayed on in the United States uh, reporting uh, from, from headquartered in Washington, but, but filing stories from, from many other destinations. And again, that's something we'll get to in a moment as well. Before that, you may remember uh, Annalise uh, co-hosted uh, AM Agenda on Sky with Tom Connell. Um, and indeed, uh, Tom, uh, a, a generous friend of the US Study Center, I literally got off air with Tom on Sky um, a half an hour ago here. Uh, did not tease our, our webinar as to steal audience away from, from, from Sky and from Tom. Uh, and, of course, the prime minister is, I think, holding a press conference as we speak. So that might have been a foreword order in any event. Um, but, in, um, but back to Annalise. Um, Annalise has got a wide range of journalistic experience. She's covered stories um, in Australia, Asia. Now the United States and the Middle East uh, has a bachelor's degree in law. And um, her work as a journalist sort of draws on that legal background. Uh, with uh, with her before turning to U.S. politics, a lot of stories uh, earlier in her career on the Australian legal system, uh, and indeed Annalise authored a book, uh, "Money Spinners: uh, uh, A Takeout uh, on the Banking Royal Commission and the Financial Services Sector in Australia," blending, as I said earlier, Annalise's background uh, in law and, and now as a as a broadcast journalist. Um, Annalise, terrific to have you with us joining uh, from uh, Washington where it 's late in the evening. Uh, good evening to you.
1: No, thank you so much for having me. and Thank you for the introduction
0: <laughs> that, that's, that's our pleasure. We hope uh, we hope uh, this is giving um, people that know you well from your career uh, on, on air. Uh, we hope over this hour, perhaps a, perhaps a, you know we're turning the tables a little on you Annalise. Um, <laughs> we will be asking the questions um, and I hope, I hope it's i uh, I'm sure it's going to be an interesting hour. Um, um, and Gordon, um, good afternoon or good morning to you in Perth. Great to have you with us again.
2: Absolutely. Great. And great to have Annalise with us. I, I found out that she's originally from Western Australia from Perth. And so there's an added tie there, which i am always looking for situated here in Australia's Indian Ocean capital as we are. Uh, But I also have to confess, that I'm a little bit jealous, Um, you know, I spent so long in Washington, DC, and I was looking at my calendar, I have now been away from Washington for over a year, which is the longest stint in over 30 years. And so uh, I'm actually looking forward to to, uh, questioning Annalise about uh, the the sites, places and people that I no longer have direct access to uh, sitting here in Western Australia.
0: That's the, the case for me too, Gordon, I think we were our last trip yeah, together, for both of us, I think we were in DC together in January, late January of 20, that might've been. That's correct, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, and I got to say, um, these conversations like the one we're going to have with Annalise um, are so vital uh, to the work of the two centers um, um, with, with this inability temporary as it is, we hope, uh, as we expect. Uh, to get to the United States. And for both Gordon and myself, dual citizens of Australia and the US, um, not being able to get to the US um, um, uh, um, makes us all that more reliant and all that more grateful for the for the time that Annalise is giving us today. Hey, um, let's get straight into it, if, if, if we can. Look, um, Annalise, I wonder if we might begin with your sense of looking, it's funny back in Australia, um, that the fever pitch of interest that I think Australians more broadly had in all things to do with US politics, uh, particularly through 2020 leading up to the election and the aftermath of course, um, with, with now with Biden as president, I think a little bit of a sigh of relief if anything <laughs> um, and, and perhaps a sigh of exhaustion to some extent, um, uh, is how I might characterize um, the general mood in Australia here, perhaps less of that hour by hour, almost minute by minute sort of attentiveness to American politics. I wonder if you could give us a read from where you sit of um, look, how are things in Washington? What's the state of play? How's the administration faring both from a political perspective, from a policy perspectives, a lot we could get into in the detail there, but I thought I'd leave that hanging at a fairly high level of generality and, 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 and let you give us a, a brief readout to get us rolling.
1: Yeah, look. Um, so I came to the U S in August of last year. Uh, and a lot of that was sky saying, let's get someone in here before it even gets any more pear shaped. And like uh, both of you, I'm also a dual citizen and, um, single no kids so they were like right off you go (laughs) and um it was so that was fantastic but one of the things that we really focused on was kind of getting that experience of what's happening in America outside of the big cities because so much of the coverage is focused on New York, LA, and DC. And as much as we are politics obsessed at Sky, if you want to understand politics, you need to understand who politicians are talking to and that's their electorate. Uh, So in that time of the election campaign, those few months, we traveled to 16 different states and we were the only network to do that. And I think it was the most valuable thing that we did because it just gave us the best sense of how divided America was. That's not new, but it was just how engaged the Democrats were in that time that was quite evident. And just the divisions that we saw even in people's families. um, And this is something that so many people have told me they've never seen before in America. So, I mean, I met families who they had birthday presents that they've wrapped for their family friends. And in between buying that present and the family friend's birthday, they felt fallen out and to think that it's someone you know well enough to do that. Um, I talk to people that don't speak to their own siblings, their cousins, parents anymore because of politics. So it did absolutely reach that fever pitch. And the one thing that's changed now, I mean, plenty's changed, but there's no Trump presence on Twitter. There's no constant cycle of it anymore. So that's something that's really taken the heat out of it. Um, Even since the election, I've travelled quite a bit around America, around the South as well. Um, It does seem like uh, the heat's coming out of it, but it doesn't mean it's gone away. There's still a very disengaged uh, percentage of the population that was very pro-Trump. They still really like Trump. They're not seeing as much of him. He's not as front of mind, but this is all gonna ramp up again with the midterms. And then of course the next election, depending on who the Republican candidate is. Uh, And then the overarching thing in all this has been the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, You've had about 80 million Americans just don't care. They just—they don't want an impact in their day-to-day life. They're not worried about getting it. One of the questions I asked the most during the election campaign was, do you know anyone that's had COVID-19? Because that was the defining factor if anyone actually cared about it. And you would meet people that know people that died and they'd say, oh, well, he had a bad heart. He was old. Um, it was just so down political lines. And then you meet Democrats, and they wouldn't know anyone that had had it. And they'd be just terrified of it. And they'd be so worried about going out. And um, that was something that really struck me. Uh, As for the Biden administration, they came in very hard. They had a lot of objectives they wanted to do right away. He came in strong, uh, taking back a lot of the executive orders that Trump had issued during his time. This is the interesting time, though, because one of the things that President Biden said that he's good at, that Trump's not good at, is being that negotiator across the aisle, but the numbers aren't in his favour in the House or the Senate. So this is the challenge and that's all going to come down to this infrastructure bill, whether he decides to pull rank at some point or keep negotiating. So it's it's still a really interesting time when it comes to your question about the engagement of people day to day. I think Australians are always going to be fascinated with what's happening in the US. Our future is just so dependent on it. It's so reliant on what America decides to do next. They're leaning on us geopolitically when it comes to the rise of China, and that's going to start really putting pressure on Australia, but the funny thing is Americans always ask me like, why do Australians care about what's happening in America? Do they really, do they follow it? And it's like, yeah, we really follow it.
0: (laughs) Hey Gordon, I I thought, would you like to follow up on on any of that with Annalise?
2: Absolutely. um, the last lengthy period of time I spent in the United States was a month-long family vacation all throughout the Intermountain West in July of 2019. And what struck me was how few conversations I had about politics, how rare the word Trump came up. Uh, In other words, it was far less discussed in the middle of the United States than it was here in Western Australia. It's just a a different level of intensity and focus. Uh, And I, I share Simon's observation that there has been a remarkable tapering off of that level of interest just with without the daily drama driving of the news cycle that used to come during the Trump presidency. So I do have a lot more head space. Having said that, there's an awful lot of really important trends going on that I don't think I've got my hands on. And I wanted to kind of, given your experience in those 16, 16 states and the remarkable reporting that you did down on the border, et cetera, I, I, I'm, I was struck by a recent article, and I don't know if you were aware of it, it was written by Ben Rhodes, you know, former advisor to President Obama, and it was in the Atlantic. And he'd call, he says, and then she asked me about Benghazi, right? And, and he was just basically talking about how he went to Harper's Ferry. If you haven't been, it's right outside of DC, beautiful, charming little venue. And he just wanted to write a book. And there was this charming, nice middle-aged woman there running the bed and breakfast. And everything was fine uh, until, you know, they started talking about politics. And, and she, you know, ventured that she was a former Obama supporter who supported Trump. Uh, and then... Uh, The more the conversation went on over the course of the days, the more they realized that it wasn't just policy differences. It wasn't just politics. It was just fundamentally a different set of facts, not over one event, but over a whole series of events. Uh, And he portrayed this as an America that is deeply divided, not over policy, but basic understanding of what happened where reality is. I'm curious as to uh, whether you think that's reflected in Washington, which I always thought is kind of a community unto itself where yeah. even, the, even the partisans were in the know. They, they knew that it was a game. And when there's a difference between that and there's a really a bifurcated reality in the other places that you've been.
1: Yeah, so I guess two points in that. I'd say the first on your point of the fact people aren't talking about politics, it's because it's so sensitive and you are going to offend someone. So wow. I found that people wouldn't bring that, but the minute you asked them about it, and especially if they thought they had a sympathetic ear, you would get a lot of opinion and it was so they would be frustrated they'd have like uh, things that people had said that they were angry about but they wouldn't bring it up with them because it's just so explosive and a lot of this then spills out onto social media because hey your colleague says something that really pisses you off because they're pro-Trump and you're a Democrat and they say how can you vote for that guy they're not going to have the argument at work because they might lose their job they're going to get home on Facebook and And I met a number of Trump supporters that said like they were putting pro Trump stuff up and their colleagues would complain and they'd have to take it down. And then their Democrat colleagues would get to put stuff up and they wouldn't have to take it down. And so there's that kind of whole element of festering online. Um, As for the uh, alternate set of facts, uh, that is very true for segments of the population that they seek out. It's that cognitive bias. You seek out what you already agree with. And so I think it's not necessarily just that, they're being told something, it's that they know what they're looking for and that reaffirms their own opinion. So there is certainly more opinion-based news in America. There's, if that's what you want, there's more options than you would get in Australia. There's certainly more extremes like, of those opinions as well, which you'd expect when you've got a population of 300 million people. But really, I think that's uh, it's the symptom, not the problem.
0: Fair enough, Hey, just, um, let's deal with a little bit of policy nerdery. You mentioned um, the infrastructure bill, and and you know the sort of arc of how the Biden presidency is going. It's not clear when a honeymoon ends, but I think it's <laughs> over by now. The political honeymoon. <laughs> um, 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 um. He's got. It seems to me from this distance really a fair stock of political capital uh, of having preside, uh, presided over a pretty effective vaccine rollout. Now, I'm, I'm open to being challenged on that, whether that's your view of it on the ground or whether it's one of those things <laughs> <scenes> oh, <yeah. laughs> subject yeah. to al- alternate facts. Um, but now, now it's hard, right? And now it's hard. Now it's the summer. Now it's, um, high, we've got the uh, sort of the emergency spending on COVID done. And now we're getting, you know, infrastructure. So many presidents come to office wanting to sort of do a big infrastructure spend. This is infrastructure on steroids, as I understand the legislation, number one. And and as you just sort of referenced earlier, the numbers in both House and Senate, well, the Senate couldn't be tighter. Uh, yeah. uh, and, and the House is, is very, very delicate as well. I'm just wondering your sense of, are we coming up? Is this sort of, we're going to see a a great deal of political competence and they're going to get this through, or is it just going to get, you know, could things be starting to seize up already politically for Biden? And if so, you know, what's your sense of what that does to him as a president and perhaps the Democrats in Congress over the next 12, 18 months, or even in Biden's case, the rest of his term?
1: Yeah, look, it's, um, the infrastructure bill is an interesting one because on the face of it, it doesn't sound that enthralling, but (laughs) it's so critical to Biden's legacy. And there's a lot in there that, uh, and this is a very political fight between the two parties defining what's infrastructure and what's not. By the traditional definition, there's a lot of stuff in there that's simply not infrastructure. And whether that's the perception from uh, the Democrats is this is to enact broad structural change across America. So that's not always gonna look like a railway or a bridge from the Republican side, they say this is Biden's broader socialist agenda and he's cramming it all into this one bill to make it sound a lot more innocuous than it is. And like most things, the truth lies somewhere in the middle. And there's also an aspect where they're going to overshoot because it's such a huge program. So then they negotiate some stuff out and then get more to what they actually realistically thought they were going to get in in the first place. But uh, I mean, one of the big parts of the infrastructure bill has been uh, broadband infrastructure. And that's a huge thing when it comes to access to education, especially we've seen in the last year. I mean, I visited schools during the pandemic that had to fund broadband bands to go park in poor suburbs where their students were so they could do at home learning. And this was on top of them already having to source laptops because a lot of these kids don't have homes with computers, which from a place of certain privilege, it would be hard to comprehend. But some of these schools, that's their entire community. So. This is where it it does come down to a real debate about access to education, equality, things like that. There's also um, an element in the infrastructure bill that's been quite controversial, which is around uh, some more social engineering around uh, equality for Black Americans. Um, So jobs programs, things like that. And it's to try and kind of put it in a way that's not contentious, but in labelling it as infrastructure it's become just as contentious as you'd expect. So uh, that's why this is become such an issue. I think the infrastructure bill is something that has been a keystone of the Biden plan. So it's going to pass in some form. He's going to have to get some kind of infrastructure bill passed. Um, This is what he's been negotiating with the Senate. And interestingly, he's actually singled out a few Democrat senators as being uh, problematic as well, but potentially... (laughs) Supporting the Republicans. So it's not always black and white. When it comes to division, I mean, for a long time, and I I think this is still the case, that some of the Democrats were saying they wouldn't talk to Republicans who they thought had supported the January 6th insurrection and just complete blackout of talking to them. How do you get anything done? So I think that's going to ebb away at some point. But, I mean, what's politics without a bit of conflict?
2: if I can chime in here, it seems that there's three major movements on the hill, and they're all intertwined together. Uh, the first one we've already seen votes on, and this was the proposal to establish a special commission to investigate the events of January six. Uh, and the fact that that failed and that failed relatively narrowly, uh, my guess is puts added pressure upon some Republicans, the, the few remaining moderate ones, and added pressure upon those kind of swing Democrats uh, on the issue. Uh, so Joe Manchin of, 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 of West Virginia, I believe it is, and from my home state of Arizona, Kirsten Cinema. Uh, but then there's the third bill, uh, or, or that, that it seems to be almost even more existential than infrastructure. And I agree, I agree with you at least very much that infrastructure is very much a key part of Biden's legacy. We've gone already from you know $2.3 trillion to now they're talking about a package that's around a billion dollars, and that's probably what likely get through in one form or another. But that third package of legislation is really centered around voting rights. Uh, and that is what, what again, I'm, I'm curious as to your view about how existential that is, because there is on, on the left of American politics, this narrative that, with a wave of, of efforts on the state level across the United States to suppress voter turnout to make it more difficult to vote uh, you know, the, the voter integrity laws, uh, the only way to combat that is to do so nationally, and that is with that first bill that comes up almost every Congress hr one, which is mm-hmm. a whole raft of, uh, of, of of legislative fixes to kind of strengthen american democracy and, and I've, I've gone from some people saying, well Trump is you know we, we stood." Up to the challenge of American democracy, you know the the coup on January 6 failed, uh, and, and the dangerous pass, and others say no, that was just the first of many innings, and the real danger is coming down the pike. And unless we get HR one, then we're going to have real problems of 22, 2024, which are far bigger and far more important than infrastructure. So I guess I, I'm asking a really complex question, but are those three tied together? They seem to be. In terms of the politics of Washington and the relationships in Washington, part of that the same thread that's being pulled through them about the future of the Biden presidency.
1: Oh yeah, I mean this is the Biden presidency establishing its um, uh, its legacy. I think uh, the. The, the commission into January 6 was interesting because the perspective the Republicans were putting forward was that they're not against it, but they want uh, fair representation on the eventual panel. And so that's what they used to kill it. But you can assume that even if that came forward, they probably wouldn't be enthusiastic about it either. Um, The voting suppression is interesting because that is the narrative that was put forward that they enrolled enough voters, they got them to the ballots and that's why Joe Biden won. That's why because we didn't see any fewer people voting for Donald Trump than they did last time. We just saw Mm -hmm. better turnout for Joe Biden. So the assumption there is that they're not going to have the exact same reaction from Republicans next time that they're not going to have them sitting festering for four years and say, you know, I didn't get out last time, but I'm really fed up with Joe Biden, this whole socialist push from the left, which is the language they use, and they'll get out and vote too. And so they need to ensure in that time they don't lose that margin. But I mean, that works. Look at Georgia. We're talking about Georgia as a swing state now. Who would have thought? So that's going to be absolutely critical and that's something that unites the democrats as well because this is the other challenge is joe biden's not leading a united party necessarily he has a very progressive element within the democrats that don't mind being vocally critical of him and there is always that threat with the numbers in the senate so i think that is another one to watch too
0: um my my sense of it is that gordon i think you're absolutely right to draw attention to HR1, but I think it's dead. Um, There's no way to get it through the Senate um, without it coming up for a filibuster. Um, It's not a money bill, it's not a budget bill where you could use that, you know, now we're deeply technical, but I somehow think that a lot of people on this webinar are across the nerdier details of American politics and the legislative process, but the reconciliation process is not an option for HR1. Um, and um, and it's even hard to see an amended or even a watered down version that survives. Um, uh, it, it can get sixty votes um, in in the uh, in the Senate, and and that's a shame um, because what's going on out in the American states right now um, is pretty scandalous, frankly. Um, and I think Annalise sort of hit it with this, you know. We're not going to see turnout like that again for a Republican, unless it's maybe if it is Trump in 24, but in particular, um, um, so we have to frankly put a thumb on the scale or even an elbow on the scale in some cases. Um, um, I, I think it, it's, for me, it's one of the under, underappreciated facets of of, uh, of American, pop- because it's happening out in the States and it, and. And Australians, it's so hard for Australians to get their head. Of, you know, both sides of Australian politics support compulsory voting and the Australian right. Electoral Commission and all this. You know, and yeah, uh, you know, you can vote in the airport, right, in Australia. You know, um, uh, you can vote. They make it really easy to vote. Why? Because it's compulsory and it's sort of state by state and completely backwards um, sort of orientation from in certain parts of the United States. Um, and it's it's really hard to square. Um, and we talk about this a lot, Gordon, on these calls. Um, this is a frequent topic, but but it, it's it's a really big deal. Um, I I think um, Trump may be gone, and and that's a question. Um, but the uh, reaction of Republicans and state legislatures um, to the 2020 election um, is is a living, breathing thing that is. Um, that is right now. I think one of the you know one of the uglier facets of of, of American democracy. To be to be honest about it, uh, oh, wow. it it's like you know, the Civil War was one hundred and sixty years ago, but but those cleavages uh, and, um, uh, survive. It is the states of the former Confederacy, but not exclusively, but but principally the states of the former Confederacy, where you are seeing uh, the biggest attempted wheelbacks of of, of voting rights. Um, in the United States. So okay. that's not a question. Go, go so ahead. Go ahead.
2: <laughs> because again, the reason I tied those three bills together, because they all tied around the, the question of the filibuster, right? Uh, do, you, do you share Simon's kind of core pessimism uh, that there, there won't be kind of reform to the filibuster, in which case, those things are dead, in which case then we're in for a real roller coaster ride for 2022? or does the shock of voting down, you know, a January 6th Commission, you know, and the shock of Trump coming out this week and saying, I fully anticipate that I will be reinstated in the White House by August and two senators will be there with me, does that kind of motivate people to realize that we're we're not out of the woods yet, that there are some there's some structural issues that might require, if not the end of the filibuster, some fundamental reforms? Uh, I'm, that that's what I, I'm missing in not being in Washington, D.C., the sense.
1: Yeah. of well, I think the answer for that question is outside of Washington, D.C., because uh, people are just so checked out at this point. Like, um, I think, like, I mean, on those points about the January 6th insurrection, everyone's made up their mind about what happened one way or the other. And I mean, it, there's just been this constant stream of coverage around the FBI investigation and, the, and all of that, and it is starting to get just a bit repetitive. And, I mean, even around D.C., the um, bus stop uh, ads that were for people to dob in someone that was in the interaction and the, um, fine, and the rewards you could get for doing that, they're all gone now. It's back to bank robbers and missing children. Um, there is just this kind of sense that people are just... They've had such a year with COVID, one way or the other. Like if you were stuck at home because you were terrified of it, you are burnt out because you missed out on everything in your life and it was really stressful. If you hated the whole thing and you didn't believe in the virus, you've had a whole year of having to deal with stuff being shut when you think that's ridiculous and not being able to see family and all that. So everyone's kind of getting back to normal. They've got the vaccine rate over 50%, but the sense is I've got the vaccine, so I'm safe, or I'm not going to get it because so I don't believe in the virus. So everyone's kind of reverting back to normal. So there's a real sense of disengagement with politics and what's happening in DC. And I think Simon mentioned that at the beginning, at the beginning of summer, <laughs> people are going on vacations. The school holidays are coming up, and so no, no more homeschool issues. Like this is a time when I think this, they're probably going to get away with a lot of inefficiency in DC. Oh, huh.
0: it, it's, I did want to ask about that, Annalise. Um, I've had a few other calls with think tankers and academic colleagues and diplomats. Uh, and this pervasive, like call after call, I've had with people in the States <laughs> over the last week or two, um, everybody is very excited about this summer. Um, it is long overdue for an exhausted American people. Um, the, the vax rates are, are, are getting to a place where, Rightly or wrongly, um, um, people feel safe um, yeah. and and there's a sense of um, we want to put things like Gen 6 in the rearview mirror and 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 just enjoy an American summer because they didn't get to enjoy the last one. Yeah. Um, um, could you, to the point I've heard, you know, it's got a political implication. People think it's going to be really hard to get things through Congress this summer. Um, um, Pelosi driving the infrastructure bill um, is, is sort of, is hard. We're he- I'm hearing it in all sorts of different ways from when people expect to be able to turn around book projects or writing projects I'm loading them up with and things like that. I'm just wondering, can you give us a sense of how it feels at the moment with that? Is a is sort of, you know, the sun's coming up and, and people are really up for a, for a summer break um, and, and sort of the degree of sort of, comfort or security around, around COVID-related things?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's still a portion of this uh, population that's quite anxious, uh, especially the ones that have been staying home. They're all going back to work now. All the offices are saying, like, okay, it's time to come back in. And it's funny, even, like, in my office building, uh, where I work out of in D.C., it's, like, people have been reunited after only seeing each other virtually for a year and a half. And it's, like, hugs, tears, running up to each other, Um, like and I'm not facetious when I say it feels like the end of a war it's like there is just that sense like it's over and that's something Fauci's had to come out and actually say he keeps saying like please this is not over but we actually have to keep up with the vaccines and everything Uh, and they're especially worried about some of those uh, states in the middle and the south that aren't getting up to their vaccine targets I mean you've had some states like Minnesota get to ridiculous levels um mainly because they held the state fair as ransom. (laughs) I think there were like over 80% because they said to everyone, if you want a state fair this year, you got to get vaccinated. And, and, and whatever it, it takes. Whatever yeah, exactly. it takes. <laughs> You've got to get that hot dog gonna a stick. uh But the 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 sense is that people are just done. They're just it, they're just so over it. And I mean, we're looking at the vaccines that are kind of so poorly taken up now. They're sending them overseas because they can. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I know this is a very contentious topic in Australia sure, right now, especially sure Right. Yeah. But, get back to yeah. if anyone's on the call and wondering. <laughs>
2: In our conversations, we try not to play on stereotypes, but sometimes it's difficult not to. When you have certain states offering free lottery tickets for vaccinations, you know, West Virginia governor is now offering guns for vaccination, and yeah. the other state fairs and corn dogs on a stick, you know. So there's there's certain things that are probably are true. Let me let me actually read a tweet um, just to show you how different. It's very rare that we get tweets from the president of the United States these days, but yesterday on the POTUS account, he said because of our vaccination program and our economic response. America's heading to a summer dramatically different from last year's, a summer of freedom, a summer of joy, a summer of get togethers and celebrations. Almost sounds like a, a, you know, the, the beginning to a song that'll kick off the American summer, but it underlines exactly what the both of you were saying uh, in terms of that process. Uh, Simon, can I venture a little bit about the overall performance of the, of the, the um, Oh, How about it, Gordon? How about it? Because, look, on the one hand, we've got these big bills and they're struggling. Um, it, it, the American body politic, and I want your opinion on this, too, as, as a real expert in polling, has been remarkably stable. I mean, uh, it, it, one of the defining characteristics of the Trump era was how stable relatively his uh, disapproval and approval ratings yeah. were. Yeah. And it appears that it's going to be the same thing for the Biden presidency. In the first four years, it's pretty stable in terms of uh, net approval rating, 10 points higher than where Biden's was, but pretty, pretty stable in that process. From my own view, obviously the initial stimulus package was big, something on infrastructure is going to be big. Uh, I, I'm as you've heard from my previous question at least, I'm wrestling with the question of whether or not I should be hair on fire, worried about the, the fate of democracy and whether or not we're still in this extra, or whether or not that's hyperbole. I, 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 don't, I, I can't quite oh. grab it yet. but one of the things that's impressed me is how responsive the Biden administration has been to areas where they've made some quick mistakes, their ability to recalibrate rather than to double down. So uh, looking at it from, from, from Australia, India was a major issue. For about four or five days there, while India was going through the worst of the outbreak of, the, of, of COVID there, uh, the US was silent. The US had some strictures. There was no aid coming for The US wasn't saying anything. Uh, and then very quickly, the system kind of rectified itself and they got back on track. And my guess is those early days won't be, won't be thought of too much. Similarly, this last week, there's a lot of criticism of the Biden administration for not having a strategy to get excess vaccines overseas. And so just yesterday, we get this announcement that by the end of this month, they'll have 80 million doses shipped out. You know? uh, so they seem to be a little bit responsive. Obviously, the one area where they probably haven't made any movement is on trade. And that's obviously of great interest to Australia, but they've largely just pocketed all the protectionist actions uh, and policies of, of, the, of the, the Trump administration and don't seem yet willing to kind of spend any political capital moving on that front. But in general, they seem to have been pretty responsive. I'd, I'd really welcome kind of Annalise's big picture take of performance thus far. Uh, we're well past 100 days or a month past 100 day mark is how well they've done as an administration.
1: Yeah look, it's a big question. Um, You can't underestimate the enormity of the task of dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic when they came into office and it was just uh, a complete reset. There was that kind of sense that there wasn't any proper handover when you had the Trump administration kind of for so long saying that they they weren't even conceding. so I think that's something that you can give them credit for, especially some of those uh, actions that they came through with uh, in the early days of the pandemic, setting up the reporting uh, systems back to the federal government, setting up the vaccine sites, a lot of that really did help. Um, in saying that, I think a lot of it's just the kind of heat being taken out of the equation. So, uh, I mean, for instance, with, look at their handling of Israel. They were really caught um, on the back foot with that. And I think just having gone through the COVID-19 pandemic, there's a lot of sympathy for them in not acting on other things where if we were in a Trump situation, there wouldn't be the same sympathy where he to delay the same amount. So uh, without apologizing for anyone in that, I think there is a certain level of perception in um, what happens, but uh, they have got really the heat out of things. I think, the infrastructure bill, uh, I, it's just going to take a long time to roll out everything that's in it. So I think there's not going to be any quick wins in that. Uh, they've racked up trillions of dollars in debt in, with all the stimulus. I mean, that's not no small thing to look at. And one of the things that's going to be putting pressure on them right now is inflation. Uh, because if cost of living starts going up, that's going to affect people it's kind of chaotic here sometimes with I mean the oil hacking that like I had days right. driving from DC trying to find a petrol pump <laughs> and like it's just so quick how it's just amazing how quick things can go third world here um <laughs> <laughs> during the uh, the before the insurrection after that all the windows boarded up it was just like you felt like you were in a bit of a war zone so um it, Sorry, I say all this because it's just hard to gauge performance in just such weird times. <laughs> there are just so many really strange factors. And I'm just thinking about how we would have gauged Donald Trump and what's happening in the same amount of time. But yeah, sorry, that's a tough one. Well, yeah. Um,
0: let me, on, on quick pivots by the Biden administration or learning from their mistakes, um, is, all encompassing focus on COVID um, in the first certainly 100, 100 days. And, and this dovetails with your reporting, uh, Annalise, uh from, from the border. And that is what was happening on the border. I, I think of as a telling case of where they're probably a little over their skis um, and, and quickly recalibrated. And I'd be really interested in your assessment of this because I think you're Kind of uniquely qualified to to speak to this, and what I'm referring to, if anybody on the call um, isn't familiar, Annalise, uh, over the last three weeks or so, um, did some remarkable um, first-hand reporting uh, from the border. Indeed, crossing over into Mexico with a with a camera uh, operator and a producer, and and. Uh, like yes the washington dc based correspondent all of a sudden and and those of us that know um depending on where you cross the river um you are walking into the third world sometimes um uh when you cross over into some of those border towns on the mexican side um but sitting uh with uh uh families uh women and children in the in the main uh looking to get across into the united states um but i so that's the catalyst there and, and indeed it was just fortuitous as we we're approaching Annalise to be our guest today. That reporting was was airing here in Australia at the, almost at the same time and just gobsmacking um, and good on you. Not, not a lot of Washington based crews would, would, would as you said, the mandate was to get out in the field and goodness me, didn't you on that occasion? Uh, well done, but, but that gives us the opportunity I think to come back to the broader issue. Um, I don't know about you, Gordon, but, but I, I think even, you know, we've seen in Australian politics too, a change of government often sends a signal to would-be immigrants that there's a different regime. There's going to be a slightly more permissive set of rules when it comes to attempting uh, an unauthorized border crossing or, or whatnot um, compared to Trump. Uh, Biden was always going to be the case there. But I think very quickly they had to recalibrate and deal with this kind of humanitarian crisis that is still ongoing in some cases. But, but Annalise, the, the pace at which they're able to, okay, you've crossed illegally, but we can get you back across the, the river and unaccompanied minors are being, aren't being separated from parents for at least as long or nowhere near as long as it might have been initially. Could you give us sort of your sense of, of, of that arc there from, you know, those first opening weeks of the Biden presidency where they sort of had this, I think, a, a big problem, both politically and humanitarian, and your sense of where they've landed now?
1: It's still a big problem. Um, So there was the sense, especially when we were speaking to people working for -for not-for-profits and those on the ground working with migrants there, that there was a bottleneck. So these people had been attempting to come to the US for quite some time, and then the Trump administration, very hardline, dropping them back over the border. So it was just building up there. And so the pressure was waiting for a Biden administration to come in, just that hint of like more sensitive approach and they were ready to go. Uh, In saying that, it's hard to explain the enormity of the problem, Uh, even when we were planning on going down there. And so I was spending a lot of time on the phone talking to people uh, and I was saying, we need to find, like, we need to film people making an attempt. Uh, How do we do this? And I was getting laughed at because they were like, you come here. It's not hard. And honestly, the first night we were there, we were driving to uh, just a spot on the border wall where there was a bar that we wanted to uh, interview people there. And, there were people running across the street and straight to Customs and Border Protection. It was just nonstop, And everyone there has stories, photos of people going through their backyards. Um, it is out of control. Um, the question is, is that the Biden administration's fault? And then secondly, how do you stop it? Um, the, the approach has been very much similar with the Biden administration. Really, the only change was just the miners, And that was just enough to give people the incentive to say, okay, let's do this. Uh, They're not giving a lot of access to these facilities, uh, whereas we saw the Trump administration really pushing that imagery. They're trying to make this less of a problem because then it, from their perspective, uh, de-incentivizes things. But I mean, the best indicator of just how toxic this issue is, is the fact that Biden's given it to Kamala Harris, put it in her purview, and she doesn't want to own it. She's the one, her office is briefing out, oh, no, 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 we're not in charge of the border. We're in charge of the systemic issues below the border. Yeah, and, uh, and no one will go down there. And that was the one thing we heard from everyone. They just want their leaders down there seeing it firsthand because it is just uh, like we just would never see anything like that in our lives. Uh, but if yeah, you're asking if I have sympathy for them. Absolutely, the stories were just so mm-hmm. heartbreaking. And yeah. yeah, I mean, when you there are some serious victims of domestic violence, and it's uh, yeah. you'd have to be heartless to not think that you'd want to help them. But it just uh, if there's no easy solution. Do you open a border and let them all flood in? No. <laughs> so that's um that's going to be a long term one. But that isn't going to die off, I think, too, over the summer with the increasing temperature, because these people smugglers, they're a business, and so they're not gonna keep funneling people through the desert and having them die off at too high a rate. It's just not a good business model. Mm, goodness,
0: yeah. Now look, having,
2: having grown up in Arizona, I'm fully aware of the much broader, but not often enough discussed economic drivers of these trends, right? I mean, so for, for my entire lifetime, there has been uh, you know, natural flows of labor uh, which is the backbone of the American agriculture system, yeah. without which, you know, you don't get yeah. food yeah. the yeah. Uh, yeah. so uh, compared to that, you know, the gas crisis from a hacker seems to be a small kind of issue. But having said that, it's become complicated, obviously, by people smuggling, by the drug trade, by, you know, instability all throughout the region. So I think you're right. Uh, Vice President Harris is very much trying to focus on some of the underlying issues in other countries that kind of go through Mexico rather than Mexico itself and, and trying to own that. Uh, but in the end, you know, the, the biggest factor in the slowdown uh, of the number of migrants coming to the US over the last two years was not you know, the, the, the efforts of the Trump administration to make it unattractive, but be, the declining economy of the United States at the time, right? You know, and so once you have an economic rebound, inevitably, you're going to have greater demand, and that's going to push it forward. Uh, and there's going to be a lot of stories on the margins, but those are the big picture issues that haven't changed for 50 years, right? The U.S. economy booms, more people come in because more labor is needed. The U.S. economy goes down, there's less demand, they come in less. And that's the main part of that story, uh, which we're not addressing seriously because it's become so politicized. But, Annalise, you've pointed out something very important. We've we've spent now 45 minutes talking about the Biden administration. Uh, We haven't spent a lot of time talking about Kamala Harris. Um, um, On the Republican side of politics, there there is this, you know, still. narrative which they like to push that biden is 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 incapable he's just being propped up he's just a puppet he he he's addled you know he's you know suffering dementia and that the power behind the throne is really kamala harris and and that's the left of the democratic party is just trying to push her into power and yet you you put your finger on it she's been given some of the most difficult things to deal with uh obviously the border one of them and then just this last week uh this whole question of of one, uh, you know, combating uh, uh, um, um, you know, racial bias in our uh, electoral democracy. Those are pretty tall orders for a vice president.
1: Oh yeah, and it's not, I mean it's not unprecedented if Biden was in charge of immigration under Obama, but uh, I think the idea that Kamala's running the show, I mean I'm not in the Oval Office with them, but uh, there's a lot of powerful people in the Democrats. My guess would be that um, there's a lot of forces there uh, and then funnily enough, a lot of the reporting around Joe Biden is that he's a bit dictatorial and he's um, kind of barking yeah. orders. A bit, so, um, kind of can't win, can you? But uh, the Kamala question is interesting because the, the discussions really around her as being the presumptive uh, candidate for the next election. And I would be surprised if they go that way. Um, just when I was on the campaign trail, I was surprised just how unpopular she was. Um, and we spent a lot of time, uh, because uh, over the course of the, uh, campaign, we'd ask kind of the same questions and I'd often ask people of color, like, would you like to see Kamala Harris in the white house? I mean, that's pretty impressive, um, to have vice president, uh, person of color. And it was just, uh, I was shocked at how often people just, just didn't resonate with her, um, her stance on putting, when she was, uh, in California as a prosecutor, putting away parents that, um had truant kids from schools and I mean that was a classic one where that was her policy and there's actually no evidence that she ever did that Uh, but she voiced support for it and it was just toxic in African-American communities where they do have trouble with things like that and uh, it's often because of socioeconomic reasons and it's because of um, like a lot of other factors than just finding a parent and putting them in jail and the incarceration rates of Black Americans is disproportionately higher than uh, the, basically the Caucasian population and most other segments too. So I, I think that would be an uphill battle, but uh, certainly not insurmountable. And then of course it just depends who the Republicans put up. But yeah, she's been given some tough things um, that probably just gives her her foes in the uh, primaries more fodder if um, that's what it comes to. But yeah, who knows? Um, <laughs>
0: Annalise, if I could just go back to the to the board, we've got a question from Louise Collins. Um, can, can you verify one way or the other? Is the is the situation with respect to kids down there better now than it was uh, in the past? Are, are there, is the Biden administration being able to, you know, if not stem the tide, but at least manage the tide, particularly of the unaccompanied kids getting them you know, they're not going to spend significant time away in in an institutionalised incarcerated setting away from family. Um, mm. is, that the, is that the case? Or what's your assessment of, of how this administration is now tracking on that particular facet of, of the crisis on the border?
1: Uh, well, I guess it depends which element uh, of the whole process you mean, because there are still kids being found roaming on their own, crying in the desert. That's, each one's a tragedy. Uh, the administration does have a task force to reunite those minors that were separated from their parents. Um, there's still uh, a lot of reporting that the my, the, my, the young people that are being held are being held beyond the 72 hours that they're supposed to. They're not being put into the school facilities. Uh, that does seem to have died off a bit. Uh, so that they certainly have improved on that. Uh, so that's one aspect. But uh, it's also not stopped. And that's hard to say it's a win either. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm just mindful of our
0: time. We've got 11 minutes to go. Trevor um, Rowe, um, so I do wanna to pivot to a little bit on foreign policy uh, if we if we can. Uh, get through a few topics uh, relatively quickly. Uh, Trevor Rowe, I think, asked a, a question that's really top of mind for us back here at the US Study Center. Uh, and that is sort of the where the strategic focus is in for this administration at the moment. Um, in particular, I'll just read Trevor's question. Has Have recent events in the Middle East resulted in a loss of focus on the Indo-Pacific? Um, um, that's question one. Question two um is biden endeavoring to split russia from china if so will this be successful um i'd, I'd love your take on item one given that you're reporting on today uh, the fact that uh, a senior israeli cabinet minister was received by blinken at the state department today um uh sort of on cue it seems the middle east despite uh the administration wanting to talk a stronger game on the indo-pacific finds itself uh attenting as all american administrations of late have to uh to the middle east your your assessment um Annalise?
1: yeah i mean one of the best in- indicators of that is the uss reagan being redeployed to the the aircraft carrier to the middle east and leaving the in, the indo-pacific and southeast asia kind of unprotected um this i don't think the focus on that is going away anywhere but I mean, a few weeks distracted by what's happening in the Middle East. I think there, there is that advantage for them now with what's happened in Israel that they are going to see an opening where they can they can renegotiate the Iran nuclear accord. Hmm. So I think that's where we're going to see a diversion in interest, but China's still no less of a threat. Uh, we have the Putin summit coming up, um, I think, it's uh, within the next few weeks, uh, maybe a week after next. Um uh, so that's obviously going to bring a pretty strong focus there. But, I mean, the Alaska summit's a pretty early indicator that China's a very big focus. And um, I think if we're looking at their foreign policy focus and um, uh, Southeast Asia, China, don't look at what the State Department's doing, look at what the Defence Department's doing. Yeah. They're doing a lot. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> yeah.
0: um, Gordon, I imagine... Um, as the leader of the Perth U.S. Asia Center, you might have a, a view or a follow-up on, on that?
2: Well, you won't be surprised to know that the, the community that I run in is very much concerned about the same things that Annalise just mentioned. I mean, the decision to temporarily redeploy the USS Reagan uh, aircraft carrier to help support the, the drawdown in Afghanistan is understandable. Uh, hopefully, it is short-term. But the, in terms of symbolism and messaging, it, it doesn't send you know, the, the symbolism to this region, to the Indo-Pacific, about an increasing priority. Um, in general, the sign's been pretty good. I, I think like all things, uh, you know, least put her finger on it early on. In foreign policy, just as in domestic policy, one, it's kind of hard to measure things because we've gone through a period of such tumult, right? And it's such a strange era that you can't kind of measure things the way we normally would have. And on top of that, um, you, you've got to compare them to where we were before. My, my feeling is that whether you're talking about Japan or Korea or Australia or any of our other allies in the region, there is this tremendous and ongoing sense of relief that we've returned to normalcy. Uh, and a return to normalcy means a return to anxiety about American commitment, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and, and so what we're seeing right now with a lot of the, the, the chatter about this temporary deployment is a, a normal level of anxiety about American commitment in this region. Yeah. Uh, I would note that the Deputy Secretary of State, Wendy Sherman, is this week in Cambodia, in Thailand, and now in Burma. Uh, uh, that's a good sign, uh, but obviously, I think the region would have much preferred to have, have the Secretary of State, and they'd be very much looking forward to having the President come. I would give just a little bit of a, a preview. Uh, you know, Our own Prime Minister is going next week to the G7, uh, which is, is very important for Australia, uh, and I think it's anticipated that he'll meet with uh, President Biden then. We're, we at the Perth, U.S. Asia Center are, are honored that uh, next week, uh, we're going to be hosting the Prime Minister for uh, some remarks on his way to, to London, uh, as he stops by uh, Perth on his way out. Um, and we'll get a good sense for how Australia views US commitment to the region uh, from that
0: speech then. Thanks. Yeah, nice, nice, nice score, Gordon, uh, for the PM um, on his way, outbound. Um, we look, and we look forward to that. And are you live streaming that one?
2: Yeah, that'll be live stream. So
0: just on all the links here, we've got yeah, of course, it'll be on live on
2: and analyse live on
0: Sky. Yes.
1: <laughs>
0: um, um, uh, five minutes uh, to go. Um, I want to get to two topics, and oh, if I can, I'd love to do three, but I don't think we're going to have time. Real quickly, let's see. We'd go rapid fire. Um, Sarah, and I wonder if that's Sarah James, but um, from Melbourne. But anyway, Sarah asks. When will Australia let vaccinated Americans into Australia? There are parents waiting to visit their children and grandchildren in Australia with no entry <laughs> means or date in sight. Uh, and are you hearing any rumblings? You know, perhaps from our embassy over there, or
1: yeah, I know
0: it's all on the Australian and that one on the on on the. There's
1: yeah. no in America. They've never properly enforced any kind of arrival restrictions when you get here no one cares no one takes your temperature it's straight out the door and that's when I came in August and things were bad and it hasn't gotten any different now like oh trust me I'm first one who's interested in that I haven't seen my family since um oh god March of 2020 love to get back to Perth if I could but yeah there's no American restriction on that that's all down to Australia and hotel numbers
2: we we can turn that question and it says, when will they elect dual citizen Americans? I know, I know. Go back to the US. <laughs> I know.
0: I, I have a US passport, but I, I yeah, no. But because I've got Australian. I don't,
1: yeah. certificate. I don't think Australia is going to accept American vaccinations because you just get this little dinky card that they've written on in black pen. And I just think like it's not like the Australian system where you're kind of logged in with your Medicare number and everything. So I yeah. I'd kind of expect to have to get vaccinated again. If so, you fine. would
0: have got vaccinated over there, Annalise, right?
1: Yes, I got done. Was that hard?
0: Just quickly, was that hard or easy to do?
1: It was hard when I wanted to do it. Um, so I went when I was covering the Derek Chauvin trial in Minnesota, they'd opened oh. it up to everyone and Minnesota didn't have restrictions on people out of state. So my sister my sister lives in Minneapolis and we did a two and a half hour, hour drive north to a town called Breezy Point because <laughs> they had some spare vaccines and I got one there.
0: Great story. Well,
1: yeah. well done,
0: Kate, hey, um, um, uh, three minutes to go. Um, Annalise, um, as you will no doubt be aware, um, the, the the prospect of a Biden-led America uh, now on Australia's left flank, if you will, with respect <clears> to, <throat> to climate change aspirations, sort of an, a fascinating topic for, for Australians to observe it, what an election result can do, produce a change in at least aspiration and ambition um, out of the United States. Um, your sense of of where that agenda is tracking in the U.S. Congress um, and, and any sense of is, 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 that, is there potential there for that to become a, a, you know, a rare element of friction and always very harmonious, um, very close government to government relationship?
1: I think it's one of those things that's really overstated, like it's a massive priority of the Biden administration. Absolutely. They want to put in everything, every speech, they'll work it in somehow. Uh, But they're not going to meet their own targets and they're relying on people (laughs) in the country who give no, don't care at all about climate change, having to make some pretty serious life changes, uh, especially when it comes to key industries that are very pollution uh, heavy. So I think it's one of the most overstated things in the US-Australia relationship. Uh, I think if there is any pressure on us in Australia to be matching climate targets, it's so they can chalk that up as a win in their own agenda because they're not going to hit their own. So I, I think we can all call cool our jets on that a bit.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Um Gordon, any any, any quick thoughts on that one? No, nope, indeed. It's, it's a clear, clear message from Annalise, thank you. <laughs> that was well done. <laughs> And, and, and this is great because in, in uh, 60 seconds to go, I get to ask my, finally, my open-ender to Annalise. Annalise, what is it that, that you're reporting on or others are reporting on or you're seeing and no one's reporting on that you really think Australians ought to be paying more attention to out of the US right now? A little bit of an open-ended one there for you to end us on.
1: Jeez, that's a tough one. I think because Australians <laughs> are so engaged with US content. That's the most amazing thing. Like I get messages from people all the time and love it. Just like they love watching what's coming out of the US. I think um, probably it's just to watch the reaction of um, the rest of the country. And I, I think it's to crime, but is a really understated aspect of American life. Shootings are up. Uh, crime generally is up. You've got a government in that's been very um, supportive of movements like uh, BL, BLM in particular, and that's quite mm-hmm. divisive in a way that you wouldn't expect coming from an outsider perspective. And um, this isn't me putting forward a political agenda. I'm just saying mm-hmm. this is real life. I mean, there was a Uber driver shot two blocks away from a few blocks away from my house here because he was getting carjacked mm-hmm. by a 13 year old girl that stuff resonates with people that's real life because now it's harder to get an uber uh that all kind of builds up so i think and uh i know that police reforms massive topic especially after the murder of george floyd so this is where it, that i think that's going to be one to watch and race relations in america generally it just very yeah, yeah, right now
0: yeah yeah gordon any anything to add before we close
2: yeah. real, real thanks to annalise this is highly insightful we realize it's midnight there in in, in, in oh my goodness, goodness. Washington DC, so thank you. You're far more cogent late at night than I am or in the morning here. So I appreciate that. Used to be yeah.
1: out
0: Indeed, thank you, Annalise. Um, thanks for staying up late uh, for, for us today. Um, we so enjoy um, uh, our, you know, the relationship we have with you and, and, and Sky Colleagues. It's a really important platform uh, for, for both uh, centers. Um, great to turn the tables today um, yeah. And and have you give us an hour of your time uh, from from Washington, where it, where it is late? And and let me just say again, uh, it didn't perhaps didn't come through strongly enough in, in the hour we've had with Annalise. But the mandate she's had to report not just from Washington but out in the field it was a characteristic of Annalise's reporting during the election campaign. Amazing sort of vox pops and and talking to real people in real places. But, but I thought just, just a remarkable uh, set of stories analysts filed over the last three weeks or so uh, from the border uh, uh, and the best traditions of sort of that foreign correspondent journalism, just sitting and listening to people telling their stories, as I said, largely on the, that Mexican side of the border story. With desperately poor and desperate women and children, um, just remarkably compassionate journalism, but told with a with an honesty, it was just let let the camera roll and let them tell their story. Um, not what you usually think about uh, when you think about Washington correspondent and and reporting from Congress or or what's happened at the State Department today. But Annalise does that, but also this remarkable sort of journalism from the field. Um, uh, I, I think that's it. it certainly. Uh, really blew us away here at the U.S. Study Center, and um, I wanted to make sure everybody on on the call today uh, was aware of that. And you can track it down on the Sky website um, um, yeah, thank if you, you yeah. want to go. Uh, if you didn't, if you haven't seen it, uh, it's, it's up there. Um, thank you again, Annalise. We'll get. To, we'll let you get off to bed there after midnight now. Perfect. Thank you so much. For having me. Appreciate thank it. All. Thank you, Gordon, and we'll see you next month uh, for another U.S. politics and policy webinar. Bye now.